How are you guys? I, uh, I have to confess to you that I am nervous. And although I have a topic given to me, something has been laid on my heart to share. And uh, it's very personal. I feel vulnerable about it. And uh, part of me is very reluctant to share this, but, you know, maybe in this setting, um, I can find help on this issue. I have been praying to God for years, for an answer to a problem that I struggle with. And for whatever reason, God has never um, chosen to answer that prayer. And my hope had been that tonight God would answer, but I'm afraid he hasn't. And so I I just want your help. Uh, I've prayed faithfully that I would be able to come to an event like this and for once not be the best-looking man there. God's never answered that prayer. So would you pray with me, brothers? (laughs) So how many of you guys are married? All right, I have a question for you. How many of you went to college between 1965 and 1975? Because you know that was a deep philosophical time. Right, and and people would walk up and ask deep, penetrating questions about social issues, and it was during this time frame that one question surfaced: if a tree falls in the wood and no one's there, does it make a sound? And and I have a deeper one for those of us who are married, and that is, if a man voices his opinion and no woman is present to hear him, is he still wrong? (laughs) It's deep. Can you get into it? It's deep. So um, this guy comes into a bar 
And he sits down and he says, bartender, says, I want you to line up three of your best Guinness stout and put them right here on the bar for me. He said, well, uh, it's kind of an unusual request if, I mean, I don't mind pouring them one at a, one at a time. As soon as you're finished, I'll, I'll fill it up. So the bar's not crowded. I can pay attention to you. So, oh, no, man, you, you don't understand. Since my brother Sean and Frederick and I, every Tuesday we get together and we drink a dinner together. He said, but I've moved from Ireland and I missed them, but it's Tuesday night, so I keep the tradition. He says, oh, what a great idea. So every Tuesday the guy comes in and the bartender pours in three Guinness stouts, just lining them up. And this goes on for about a year. And then one day the guy comes in and his bartender starts to lay out three glasses. He says, I don't know. Guess two. The bartender got all sad. He said, oh, Patrick, I'm so sorry that one of your brothers has died. He says, oh, no, man. He says, I, I started going to church last week and so I've given up drinking. <laughs> oh, that's deep, isn't it? <laughs> but here's my favorite. This is the irony of life. Have you ever been to New Orleans? If I could, I don't believe in reincarnation, but if I did, I'd come back as a Cajun. What a joy of living. And they have this joke about Thibodeau. Thibodeau is a fictional character. And Thibodeau wins an all-expense-paid trip to Paris. But he doesn't want to go. He's never been outside of his little area. But his friends just say, how can you pass up an opportunity like this? So finally, feeling foolish, he agrees to go, gets on the airplane. But as soon as they close that bulkhead door, he panics. He jumps up. He runs toward the door. And the flight attendant grabs him and says, Thibodeau, what's wrong? He says, I don't... I don't want to go. He says, well, what's wrong? He says, I don't, I don't speak the language. I don't know the culture. I don't know the people. I don't want. He's on. He said, Thibodeau, Thibodeau, calm down. She says, you're Cajun. Your whole language is built on French. You already know more French than anybody on this airplane. You'll fit right in. So he begins to calm down. And she says, I, I've got an idea. I'm going to give you an audio cassette player to go with your headphones. And it's got spoken conversational French on it. It's a seven-hour flight from New Orleans to Paris. You can listen to that tape the whole way over. And by the time you land, you will be able to have conversational French just like that. It's a good idea. So for that seven hours, he's listening to that tape. And he lands in Paris. And one of the French police officers, you know, a gendarme, comes up to him and says, Bonjour, monsieur. Comment ça va? 
Thibodeau takes a good deep breath and he looks at him. It says, All right, all right. I asked uh, Walt, I mean, uh, Winston told me what my topic would be. And my wife delighted in this topic. It's investing in our wives. And I thought I would hide the topic from her for as long as I could. But uh, she found out about it, so I think she is going to order five sets of these, this tape and lay it around our house. Uh, turn with me for a moment to Genesis chapter 2, and I'd like somebody to grab a mic and let Chuck know who you are and read... Verse 18, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Now before you do, let me tell you, give you an overview of what I'm going to talk about. One, your wife is a helpmeet. Secondly, the uniqueness of the wife. Third, why you should invest in your wife. And then just practical Biblical ways of investing in your wife. Okay? So whoever has Genesis 2.18, Chuck, did you find them? Would you please read that? Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I will make him a helper and some translations say, I will make him a helpmeet. The uh, word helpmeet is the Hebrew word azer, which means help, sukor, a helper, a helpmeet, and one who helps. Almost all other times when that word is used in the Hebrew, it refers to God. Uh, let me give you an example. Turn to Exodus 18, verse 4. Exodus 18, verse 4. It says... And the one of Moses' sons was named Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. E-L, referring to God, and Azer, referring to the action or character of God. God who is my help, Eliezer was his name. Psalm 3320. Turn there. Psalm 3320. It says, 
Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, easer, Azer, and our shield. Psalm 115.9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Only in Genesis 2, verses 18 and 20, is Azer used to refer to the wife. And almost every other time that you encounter it, it refers to God as our help. Now, if you go back to Genesis 2, where we started, it says that the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper appropriate or suitable for him. Uh, I just came back from depositions in Chicago and I was able to spend uh, two nights with my mom and dad and my my stepdad is somewhat large and he he has sh- shirts that he, he likes to buy shirts and he buys them and he's losing weight. Now they're too big on him. So my mother gave me a shirt from my dad and I put it on and it it just didn't fit. It just, the sleeves came down past my fingers and the cut for the shoulder was down around my elbow. It wasn't suitable. It wasn't appropriate. It didn't fit what what my needs were. And the same God who defined and designed sun, moon, stars, earth, sea, mountain, hilltops, mountain meadows is the God who designs the wife. And it is notable that in this particular passage, Adam, who was smart enough to name all the animals and take on the responsibility of the garden, was not aware of his own need. Now, he sees all these pears walking around. But there's kind of a blind spot, and I suspect he may be saying, you know, something's missing, but I don't, can't put my finger on it. <laughs> and it is God who makes the observation that it is not good. Now, this is a judgment made by God because so much of the word of God runs counter to whatever culture we live in. Uh, Think of the jokes that negate the value of the marital relationship. Shelly, Shecky Green, take my wife, please. Or my old woman, the old gal, the ball and chain. Have you heard, heard? My ball and chain. And no, uh, this is being taped, right? Okay, Glenn Thomas, I'm not speaking directly to you. <laughs> um, God makes the value judgment that it is not good for man to be alone. And many cultures will try to make us think that the 
ideal situation for a man is to be alone but have women committed to you to whom you are not committed. And who is the paradigm of that? Bond. James Bond. I can remember when those James Bond movies came out, the women would just throw at him. He'd have a one night stand and he's off to the next adventure to save the world. But God makes this value judgment. It is not good for man to be alone. And man, Adam, as smart as he was, an undiluted intellect, not polluted by CNN or the Disney Channel or pornographic movies or anything else, doesn't recognize his own need. This is critical to understand in terms of investing in our wives. It means that there is a tendency on our part not to realize the need we have for our wives. I know for years I was very willing and eager to say I loved my wife. That was a hip thing to say. But it became extremely difficult for me to say that I needed my wife. That was a whole nother level that I just did not want to enter into. What is it about us? that our first reluctance is to say we love them, and then our huge second reluctance is to say we need them. But God, omnipotent and omniscient, says, Adam, guess what? You have a need. What is it, God? I got plenty of fruit down here. And I got plenty of companionship. No, Adam. It's not good for you to be alone, and I am going to make a helpmeet appropriate for you. Now, he must be scratching his head. What in the world is that about? And it is significant that in order to meet this need, God puts Adam to sleep, and then from Adam, from Adam, creates this woman. And I want to come back to that. Now, the uniqueness of the wife. She is made from man. It is the only human relationship in the Bible constituting one flesh. If you look with me at Genesis 2, verses, I'd like somebody to read verses 22 through 24. Who will do that? Genesis 2, verses 22 through 24. Somebody raise a mic. Thank you. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. Uh, And uh, there is no other relationship in the Bible like that. Now, children come from mothers, but they are not one flesh. And now there is a mystical, spiritual union, as far as God can determine, from his own perspective, that we are one flesh. But unlike those uh, twins or the two girls born in England who were joined at the hip, and the issue 
The issue was how to separate them so that both live. That was the struggle. And God says the issue for us is how do you remain one flesh so you can see what I have for you. Marriage is a living metaphor of Christ's relationship with the church. Ephesians 5, verses 30 and 32. If you will turn there for a minute. Ephesians 5, verses 30 and 32. It says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. It says this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. But there is in the relationship we have in our wives a living metaphor about Christ's relationship with the church. And it is an inescapable relationship for us if we profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And one of the things then that we must worry about is the hardness of our hearts toward God. Let me repeat that. In our relationship with our wives, one of the things we must worry about is the hardness of our hearts toward God. Because it is the hardness of our heart toward God which leads us to become hard toward our wives. Turn with me for a moment to Matthew 19, verse 8. Jesus is being questioned about the accommodation for divorce that Moses wrote about in the Pentateuch. And they ask him at verse 7, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to send away the wife? And listen to Jesus' answer. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Why would he say the hardness of our hearts? Because there was in the Hebrew culture earlier in Moses' time uh, such a callous treatment of a wife that a man would just verbally or physically abuse her if he became dissatisfied with her. So for her own protection, a bill of divorcement was allowed so that she could escape. I, uh, for years, supported a missionary from Orissa, India, named Haran Kumar. And one of the problems he was trying to deal with in his native culture was to prevent husbands from burning their wives in what they euphemistically called kitchen fires. They would douse them with kitchen oil and burn them, kill them, if they became dissatisfied with them for whatever reason. 
She didn't cook the rice correct today. We don't know what it was. And I'm not pointing out the people of India as though they are really any different from us in this regard. The issue is the hardness of the heart. That phrase, hardness of heart, also refers to our lack of faith. When the Hebrew people were led out of Egypt into the desert and they were without water, they did not believe that God would provide. And in Psalm 95, 8, they are described as having hard hearts because they did not believe God that he would provide. And I, and I'm, I mention that because in a room this size with this many men, there is at least one man right here, right now, who is this close from divorcing his wife. I don't know who you are, so don't think I'm pointing out anybody because I've been told anything. But in a room this size, there is one of you here today. You are that close to having an affair. And somebody else, you are this close to walking out on your wife physically, and you may have already walked out on her emotionally. And you don't believe that God can provide water in the desert. And we'll say things like, we just don't communicate anymore. Or, I don't know, we just don't seem to have anything in common. Or, when we were younger, you know, it was exciting to be with her. Sex was fun. And now it's just, everything's boring. I don't feel fulfilled. And you have not made it an issue of prayer to God. And you do not believe that he will provide water in the desert. There is a section in Mark where Jesus feeds 5,000 people plus from just a few loaves and fishes. And then a little bit later, he feeds a group of 4,000 with another small group of loaves and fishes. And then he leaves with his apostles and he goes across the water and he says, beware of the bread of the Pharisees. And they look at each other and they go, well, I mean, don't, don't we have enough food? Or, or does he want us to go to the village? Now, Jesus has just fed 5,000 and then 4,000 from basically nothing. And he is a bit upset with them because he did not un they did not understand that he was talking about the application of spiritual truth. And he said they didn't understand because of the hardness of their hearts. That's Mark 8, 17. So there is spiritual truth about your relationship, about our relationship with our wives that we may be unwilling to apply or learn because our hearts are growing hard toward God. And I have found in my experience when a, 
when a man tells me that he's falling out of love with his wife or he's having a problem, the first thing I want to question him about is not the relationship with his spouse. That's second. I want to know where he stands with God. Are you in fellowship? Are you uh, attending a Bible-believing church on a faithful basis? Are you in prayer? Are there a group of men, one, two, three, four, to whom you're accountable that you open up your heart and to whom you're vulnerable? What is the state of your relationship with God? And it's unusual. I'm not saying it never happens. It's unusual for a man to say that his relationship with God is vibrant, good, and satisfying. And I want to divorce my wife. That is extremely unusual. So the uniqueness of your wife is that you are one flesh with her. And because you are one flesh with her, there is an ability of that relationship to be a marker to the quality of your relationship with God. A marker. Now I recognize that some men may be married to a shrew. I understand that. Now, why you should invest in your wife? One, because you are one flesh with her. Now, this is, I, I, I've only begun and I'm only beginning to appreciate this more now after being married 29 years. We just had our 29th wedding anniversary in August, and my wife has just loved every minute of it. <laughs> We'll edit the tape, okay? Um, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal. It was a front-page article in the Wall Street Journal four years ago. A man had a job. He had started a business, and his business was to find friends for wealthy, successful businessmen. That was his whole business. He would interview you. He would get a personality profile, and then he would go out and find friends for you, and they would pay five to $15,000 for his services. We live in a time when our success tends to alienate us from other men. And in that alienation, we have less and less accountability. There are no other men to whom we will open up and make our and expose our lives so that they really get to know us, our ups and downs, our faults, our strengths, our successes and our failures. But if we have one flesh, there is a God-provided protection against alienation and a lack of accountability. Now, I'm not saying a wife should replace accountability you have with another man or group of men. But I'm also saying that accountability you have with other men should not replace the accountability relationship you should have with your spouse. Because she has this unique relationship with you. And being close to her will protect you from 
your own alienation and our tendency to be lonely in a busy world. Two, your wife is a gift from God. Proverbs 18.22 says, Whoso findeth a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor and has obtained the favor of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 9.9 Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of your vanity, which God has given you under the sun all the days of your vanity, for that is your portion in this life and in your labor which you take under the sun. In other words, one of the evidences that you have that God loves you and wants you to have richness in your, in your life is a wife. Now, I'm wagering that there is at least one man out there who is rolling his eyes inwardly at that statement. All right? But God has given you a wife whether or not you are able to see her as a gift it is intended as a gift from God. How do you receive it? Three, your relationship, this is why you should invest in your wife. Your relationship with your wife may critically affect your communication with God. First Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Now listen to this. That your prayers be not hindered. Turn with me for a moment there. 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. Okay. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge, point one. Give honor to them so that your prayers won't be hindered. And that word hindered, um, in these times when that scripture was written, uh, roads were hard to build and expensive to build. And there was always in the major cities at least one major road leading up to the city called the King's Highway. So that when some dignitary, dignitary came to visit, they would come along this one nice little stretch of road that might be the last half a mile up to the city, which was generally walled or gated, and you could pass horses and chariots over this road. Otherwise, it was very difficult to cross the terrain in any level of comfort with wagons, horses, etc. And so if in there was a time of war and you wanted to prevent the enemy from bringing on vehicles of warfare close enough to your city to do damage, 
you would go out to the king's highway and you would chop it up and make it impassable. The word to make it impassable is a military word in the Greek. And it is the same word that is translated hindered in 1 Peter 3.7. So we are to dwell with our wives according to knowledge and honor them so that we are not making impassable that road that we think we are praying to God so that he will hear. Now, I tell you, gentlemen, I don't understand this. Frankly, when I communicate to God in whatever state I'm in, I don't, Bill McCurran doesn't want my prayers to be affected by my relationship with my wife. Goodness. That would mean that a good 30% of my prayers will never reach past the rooftop of my house. And I'm literally actively defeating my own prayer life. There's that phrase and uh, verse in Isaiah 59.2 that says, um, My arm is not shortened that I cannot save, and my ear is not hardened that I cannot hear. But your sins have separated you from me, and so I won't save, and I won't hear. And I can tell you there have been times when I have been angry with my wife for one reason or another. And I'm about to go off on an airplane or go into a court to make an argument or dealing with something that they, and I know, I know that I am going to turn to God and ask him for help. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over for side two. And I'm praying to him, and, and, and the first thing that comes to my mind when I'm not on good terms with my wife is why bother to pray? I've hindered my prayer already. Stop, pull off the road, go to a phone, call my wife. I hate doing this, gentlemen. And I don't have to pull off the road now that we have cell phones. And I call up and I say, Dana, uh, I, I was really selfish or mean or whatever, whatever it is. And I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? And I want to be able to tell you that I can say that with such a lightness of spirit and sweet humility that if you saw it, you would say, what a godly man. <laughs> but there are times I just struggle with that. Why should I be the one? Heck, she's at least 50% contributor to this problem, if not more. But gentlemen, it says that I want, if I want my prayers so that they get to God and that I don't hinder them myself, now, I don't understand. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. I live, move, and have my being in him. And yet I can hinder my prayers to God by my relationship with my wife. And then, why invest in your wife? Your relationship with your wife is a protection against 
sin. And I don't just mean sexual sin, gentlemen. I mean sin. How many times has my wife protected me from a sin that I rarely, rarely am guilty of? And that's pride. But every once in a while, by once every 13 years, a prideful act will come and I will need some correction. Uh, but, but your wife, being your azer, your helpmeet is going to be a huge protection against sin. She'll be a huge motivator to get you to repent before God. Now, some practical factors to think about to invest in your wife. Can you see that okay? Sure. Would you? Thank you, TJ. Okay, factor number one that you should think about, I'm going to give you eight of them, is let your wife function in her God-ordained calling as your helpmate. Now, what do I mean by that? I grew up as a basketball junkie. I played basketball from 8 in the morning until they turned the lights off on the court at 10 o'clock at night. I lived and breathed basketball. Now, imagine a guy on a basketball team who is extremely talented. Nobody can deny that this guy is the right point guard for this team. He comes to practice every day on time. He's learned all the plays, does all the drills, is there every game, and the coach will never let the player get in the game. And he keeps coming, doing the practices, busts his tail in the practices, memorizes all the plays. Everything that the coach asks him to do, he does. And every time the game comes around on Friday night, the coach looks down the bench and never calls the player into the game. Now I want to ask you, what will that player's attitude be with time? Somebody. What did you say? Futile. What else? Discouraged. Good. What else? Angry, bitter, what else? Quit. Why should why, why bother to come to the game? Why why sweat it out in practice? And so here we have, gentlemen, somebody that God has put on the bench to come into the game with us and we come home and she says, what's wrong? And we say, nothing. Never mind. You wouldn't understand. Oh, just leave me alone. I'll get over it. I'll handle it. 
Or you get on your phone and you call your best buddy Joe. And you pour out what's on your mind with Joe. And then after a while you wonder why the fellow on your bench doesn't want to come to practice anymore. Is not motivated to play anymore. Becomes bitter, angry, frustrated, and discouraged. And only we, only we as the husband have the ability to call the wife into the game. And I bet there's somebody like that here. That when your wife, and what's her role? She is the helpmeet. How can she help if you don't have any problems? How can she be an azer if you're going to deal with it all yourself or deal with it with another group of friends but not with her? So you be accountable to your wife, not in, not strictly, and you set the ground rules with her, and it'll be different for everyone. But you talk to her about your weaknesses, your fears, and your problems, and you seek and humbly receive her counsel. Now, I'm not saying you will follow it. I say you seek and humbly receive it. Now, how many of you have said, God, speak to me, speak to me? Speak to me. Should I do this business deal, God? And your wife comes along and says, you know, I don't think you should do this. I'm uncomfortable with that guy. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. God, speak to me. Lord, I need some wisdom. I would ask you to raise your hand if you've ever done that, but I don't want to embarrass you. I'll just raise my hand. Worst business deal I ever got into in my life. Took me eight years to get out of it financially. Got into it with a with a guy, my wife says, you know, I don't think you should do this. I mean, what does she know? I'm the lawyer. <laughs> right? Second factor. Live so as to help your wife be the woman God wants her to be. Seek to minister to your wife instead of focusing on whether she is meeting your needs. Husbands, it says in Ephesians 5, 25 through 29, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That for some reason God has given us this responsibility to help our wife be as godly a person as she is capable of being. We play a significant role in that. I had a guy, and I will not mention his name, he wanted to be he wanted me to be in an accountability relationship with him and i agreed reluctantly after making sure that he and i understood the ground rules cuz it's a heavy responsibility to be in some an accountability relationship with somebody because if they're walking into a wall you have to tell them somebody else can avoid it and say that's not my job but you can't do that 
you've agreed to, to let that person be accountable to you. You are a warning. And this friend of mine wanted, I know this will sound bizarre, he wanted a second wife. He was already married, he wasn't divorced. He just wanted to be able to have more than one wife. And I said, you can't, there is no way you can do that. You understand? It is wrong, it is not biblical, you cannot do that. And we went on and on and on about this, and finally he stormed out of the room one day and said, you know, you don't love me. And you have never loved me. And you have never loved my family. Otherwise, you would not be so what? Stubborn, pig-headed, judgmental, critical. I said, look, I didn't ask to get in this relationship. This is, you told me that this was my job. And I said, how? I said, you cannot have a relationship with this other woman of any type. Your role is to build up your wife and to make her feel loved and esteemed. And if this relationship impacts that even an iota, you must cut it off. And, uh, well, eventually he married the other woman secretly. Now he's divorced from both of them, fled California, and is living someplace in Florida, last thing I heard, without either woman. I am amazed at how many men, Christian men, resent and hinder the spiritual growth of their wives. Uh, my wife teaches in Bible study fellowship and not a month goes by that she is not grieving because some husband won't permit his wife to participate in the Bible study because it will interfere with his schedule because it means she won't be meeting his needs or because he just doesn't feel comfortable with it. And the issue is, I don't want you to grow spiritually. And I don't know if there's a guy like that in this room where you are, you are actively hindering your wife's spiritual growth for whatever reason. Third factor. Recognize and appreciate your wife as a blessing and a gift from God. Now, this runs counter to the culture today. Um, I think we've already, I'm going to turn to Proverbs 18.22. I just want to read it to you for a moment. Um, I don't, um, I don't make jokes about my wife. I don't make jokes about my wife because I know that it hurts her. And I know that it's not true. And I know that I need her. And I know she would never do that to me. She would never reciprocate and make me look less in the eyes of others. 
And so let me ask you, do you have a tendency to verbally abuse your wife? Do you put her down? Do you make her feel stupid, inadequate? If you went home to your wives and said, honey, I want you to tell me one two things that I'm doing that you don't want me to do. And I commit to you, I will not get angry at what you tell me. Tell me two things that you want me to change about our relationship and I commit to you that I won't get angry. I'm not saying that you commit that you'll change, that's up to you. But commit that you will hear it. Turn with me for a moment to Proverbs 5. And I'd like somebody, who, does anybody have the King James Version here? Would you take the mic, raise your hand again so Chuck can see you. Read in the King James Version, Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Ma'am, I said, what? I can do that. But you know, that verse was not written to a, a young man that had only been married one, two, three, four, five years. Can you remember being married, what it was like, sitting at the job wondering how soon you could get home? This was written to somebody that's been married a while. It says, let her breast, first it says rejoice in her. Rejoice in her. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. And always be ravished with her love. I'm fairly sure that Dana would not mind me saying one more act of for which I am deeply ashamed. But there was a time I wanted out of our marriage. The thing that held me into it was that I couldn't risk disfellowship. I needed and loved fellowship with the brothers. And so I was angry because I felt trapped. And an older Christian man, not knowing my struggles because I was too prideful to talk about it, showed me this verse just... As far as he was concerned, it was just coincidental. He didn't know what was going on. But I looked at these verses from Proverbs 5, and it was like somebody, I was drowning, and somebody says, here's a life preserver, grab it. I saw instantly that this was my one hope 
And I swam toward that life preserver and every day, every day, and not just once a day, I said, God caused me to rejoice in Dana. Caused me to be satisfied by her breasts at all times. Caused me, Lord, to be ravished by her love always. And I, I prayed that every day in like the third or fourth month, I woke up and looked at my wife in the bed beside me. She's the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. Gentlemen, there was nothing about her that had changed. It's that my hard heart, God had changed. I didn't change it. God went in and said, Bill, I'm gonna honor this prayer, not because you deserve it, but because I'm a God of grace. And I tell you, for eight or 10 years, I continued to pray that every day as a protection against myself. And I still pray it regularly, though not every day. I am amazed. I'm amazed at the change in my own life through this prayer. I honestly rejoice in my wife. I love her company. And I look at, uh, I look at, you know, it's not how attractive a woman is because these men in Hollywood and other places, they are divorcing gorgeous women right and left every day. That can't be the issue. Somebody's going to walk out on Christy Brinkley. Hello. <laughs> David Justice is going to walk away from Halle Berry. David. David. So it's not how they look. It is how they are perceived. It is the hardness of our hearts or the openness and vulnerability of our hearts toward God will determine how beautiful and desirable our wives are. Fourth factor. And I've touched on this, but hold your wife in the highest esteem. Other people need to know that you hold your wife in the highest esteem. Now I tell you, there are many times when my wife goes out and because I'm African American, my experience is different. And if I know that she's going into a particular area for dinner, I will call ahead. And I will say, my wife's coming. Her name is Dana, she'll be wearing this. I want you to know I love her. And I want you to give her special treatment. And it never fails, they do. But they, you know why? Because they say, wow, there must be something special about her because her husband cares so much. What is it that your wife regards as being lifted in your esteem? I don't know what that looks like to your wife. And the only way you can find out what that looks like is how? Ask her. Honey, what, do, what, what makes you feel, you know, how can I build you up? And she may say something as simple as, you know, um, some women say, well, don't pat my buttocks out in public. I'm serious. For some reason, that's not a sign. That's, for some women, that's a sign of disrespect, not affection. You got to find out what it is for your woman and then do what Nike says. What? Just do it. You don't have to go into any deep psychoanalysis about why she is that way. Just do it. 
and see what happens. Next, also from 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Become a student of your wife. Become a student of your wife. I keep on my computer, because gentlemen, I'm not good at this. Her dress size, her shoe size, her bra size, her favorite colors. Because I forget that stuff. I'm a guy. I don't remember that stuff. But I... But you know what? My computer hard drive does. And I'll call up her best friends. I say, what is she really into these days? What does she really like? It's amazing what you can find out from your wife's best friends. And, 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 and uh, if I want to, if her, her birthday or Christmas, I go to her best friend. I say, what is Dana looking at? What does she have her eye on? You know, we were married 15 years before I knew that my wife liked jewelry. 15. We were sitting down. And I know, duh. I'm just confessing. I'm being dumb. I'm confessing what idiocy was. I'm sitting between her knees. She's giving me a shoulder massage. We're watching television. I'm flipping through a magazine. And the magazine has, you know, diamonds are a girl's best friend. I said, you know, Dana, one of the things I appreciate about you. <laughs> is that you're not into jewelry like a lot of other women. And then, gentlemen, there was this silence. And with a moment of revelation, I did like that. And I looked around and I said, Dana, do do you like jewelry? And very sheepishly, she said, well, yes. Gentlemen, my wife wears six rings on one finger. But until that point, I had never, ever bought her jewelry, and she would not tell me because she was afraid of my reaction. And so there are times I go out with her, and I just, let's pretend like we're Oprah Winfrey. I'll interview her. What's God doing in your life? Who's your closest friend these days? Is there anybody that's hurt you recently that you don't know about, that, that you haven't shared with me? You know, just, just talk to her. And just listen. I don't have any worldly wisdom. You know, I, I've, I've, I've learned after all these years not to be Mr. Fix-It. She's got a problem. I say, oh, hey, honey, all you have to do is A, B, C, D. And her eyes would become little slits. She, was, she didn't want my solution. She wanted my ear. She wanted my compassion. She didn't need me to fix it. She just wanted me to listen. Become a student of your wife. Study her with as much diligence as you study your job or baseball stats. Number six. This is a big one. Don't be controlling. We have a problem with this, gentlemen. We're control freaks. Or at least, let me, let me rephrase it. Bill McCurin is a control freak. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Colossians 3.19. Why would he say, okay, I understand love your wives, but why? Be not bitter against them. 
And I say God warns us against the tendencies in our hearts. And there is this natural tendency that we have because we are sinners to be bitter against our wives for no good reason. Doggone it. You never make them. The mashed potatoes are always lumpy. You know, how many times I tell you, I don't like ice in my juice. Dana, would you please, my black socks go here, my gray socks go here. Whatever it is, be not bitter against them. Now, here's some indicators that I have found that you have a controlling personality with your wife. One, you control the checkbook and give her an allowance. You don't want her to know what's in there. I was that way. Finally, I gave my checkbook to my wife. My paycheck goes into her account. Guess who gets the allowance? And gentlemen, now I understand what she used to feel like. She would ask me for money. I said, well, why do you need more money? How much does that cost? What are we going to do? And she would feel like a little kid being grilled by her parent. And it made her feel that big. And I realized the only way Bill McCurin, I'm not necessarily saying this for you, but the only way Bill McCurin could handle it was to take my fingers off the checkbook and give it to her. And I go to her and I say, Dana, this is what I spent. I, I need, could, I, could you reimburse me for this? And I had to sometimes clear it with her in advance. And she'll say, sweetie, I really need you to clear that in advance. And it used to make me angry. I mean, I, but I understand how she felt. Two, you punish or reward your wife by withholding or giving money. Three, you have a bad temper. Next, you constantly bring up your wife's past mistakes. Even when you do it in a godly manner. You verbally belittle your wife in public or private. You tend to make your wife feel guilty about something. You do not like her friends. You always criticize them. You make her friends feel uncomfortable when they come around or complain to your wife that she prefers them over you. You resent the time your wife spends with her friends and you communicate that resentment to her and to them. You make to-do lists for your wife and you get upset if she doesn't do them. You want an explanation. You keep running mental lists through your mind of how your wife has let you down her shortcomings, or her failures to meet your needs. And here's something. If you are controlling, more likely than not, you are incapable of seeing it. And only your wife can answer these questions, and she may be afraid to. Seventh factor. There are only eight, so 
I just want you to know there's an end. Don't treat your wife as a sex object. The law of love should govern the sexual relationship in the home. Stay away from all influences that tend to cause you to treat your wife as a sex object or to compare her unfavorably to women whom you regard as sexy or more attractive. I was, uh, you know, Halle Berry, the actress. Well, she's fine, right? Would you agree? She's fine. So I'm reading this magazine article about the star's tips. And it's actually like in Sports Illustrated. Star's tips to remaining beautiful. So they got this part in there about Halle Berry. And I read the first paragraph and I just broke out laughing. Halle Berry, what's your secret? And I, gentlemen, find the article. I'm not kidding. She said, I sleep 10 hours a day. And I work out in the gym three to four hours every day. Gentlemen, that's 14 hours out of the day that she's sleeping or pampering. Do you have a wife with that kind of time? I don't know when my wife has ever been able to get more than six hours of sleep because she's doing this or doing that. and can It's just so hilarious. And this is, this is the ideal or the model with, against whom we compare our wife who is in the trenches with us every day, helping the mortgage get met, getting the teeth fixed, driving the kids around, wiping runny noses, and we compare her to a model who sleeps 10 hours a day and is in the gym three or four hours a day getting buffed. How in the world can a, a wife compete with that? It is impossible. And when I say, uh, don't treat your wife as a sex object, let the law of love govern the sexual relationship. There was a man in San Diego, and he will go unnamed, who required his wife to make love with him every night. Now, in some relationships, I'm not putting any comment on frequency. The issue was, it didn't matter what condition she was in. Didn't matter whether she was tired, didn't matter whether she was sick. It didn't matter to him. She was there to satisfy his physical needs. He had no role in ministry to her. And gentlemen, that's just flat wrong. Reverse it. Do unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. And so... Another influence that's going to affect that is what? Pornography. And gentlemen, one of you out there today, you're hooked on it. I don't know who you are, but you go to a web page on a regular basis and you're looking at stuff that is going to ruin your relationship with your wife. And I'm telling you now, stop. Tell somebody you have the problem, stop it. Don't entertain it. Don't think it's cute. Don't think it's acceptable. Gentlemen, it's wrong. Stop it. Am I being ambivalent on that? Okay. Last factor. I've kind of touched on this. Be the one 
who initiates reconciliation in the marriage. Because we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. The church did not initiate reconciliation with Jesus, did it? Jesus initiated the reconciliation. Jesus paid the cost of the reconciliation. Jesus had the initial vision for the reconciliation. Of all the ones up there, this is the one that I have the biggest trouble with. I want my wife to admit she's wrong. And if I have the uh, spiritual humility to come forward and say, Dana, I'm really sorry for such and such. Forgive me. I want her to reciprocate. I want a quid pro quo. And that cannot be my motivation. And I'll end with the words that Brother Winston said about our theme this weekend. God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. And for that purpose has given us the word of reconciliation. That we will reconcile men to God and on that basis men to men. And so we must be the initiators of reconciliation in our marriage. Without regard to who is at fault, the issue is reconciling. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for um, Gail Jackson and Walt Hendrickson who are my spiritual fathers and have been such a blessing in my life. I want to thank you for Winston Parker who has continuously encouraged me. I want to thank you for the men who have taken away from their weekends to come and hear your word and apply. And I'm mindful of Walt's words that talking is not teaching and listening is not learning. And only you can open our hearts to apply the truths of scripture so that they make a practical difference in our lives. Do so tonight and all weekend. In the name of Jesus, we plead with you to do this. Amen.